Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If that's you, grab a few friends and work your way through the Word Diet. If that's not you, I'll bet you have friends who are in that position, so why don't you grab them, have some coffee, meet weekly, and go through the Word Diet as a little group. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the Book of Exodus, a terrific book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. We actually wrap up Exodus today. A little bit of work to do as the golden calf incident and the aftermath wraps up. We have the glory of God revealed to Moses at the end of chapter 40. And then I have a number of comments by way of review, summary, and conclusion. Previous episodes are available by podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. And I look forward to wrapping up Exodus today. Lord, be with us today. Thank you so much for the book of Exodus and all that it has for us about history and, more importantly, things like your character and what you want from us and for us. Thank you for uh, all that you give us. Thank you especially for your mercy and your grace as best manifested in the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're going to start with the end of the golden calf incident today. So we're in Exodus 34. We're going to start with verses 27 and 28, although I already covered verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. There is some ambiguity in this passage about who's writing what and what's being written. There are references to God doing the writing, Moses doing the writing here. Uh, The words of the covenant is mentioned, the Ten Commandments are mentioned. So we're not entirely clear exactly what's being written down, but we get the general idea, certainly. The key thing here is the 40 days and nights with God on a complete fast. It's interesting, chapter 24, verse 18, the previous 40 days does not mention a fast. And Christ's fast, which is similar, implies that he drank water. How did Moses do it? Matthew Henry says the power of God supported him that he did not need it. His communion with God entertained him so that he did not desire it. Another amazing thing about this is that he spent 40 straight days with God. Matthew Henry says, when we are weary of an hour or two spent in attendance upon God and adoration of him, we should think about how many days and nights Moses spent with him, and of the eternal day we will spend in praising him. If we broaden this out a little bit, I'm struck by the people who imagine that they're going to heaven or that they would even want to be in heaven when they have no interest in being with God or his people today. If you don't want to be with God and his people today, why do you think you would enjoy heaven? Maybe that would be hell for you. The 40 days are also interesting and important because now the Israelites do behave themselves. As we talked about on last week's show, the recipe that you know Moses trotted out was rough, but it works. The people are well behaved this time and taking care of their business. The last point here is that the 40 days are reiterated, which helps us to understand God's unchanging plan 
And it was convicting in that they had barely pushed God's timing before. It's a 40-day plan, 40 days before, 40 days after. If they just held on a little bit longer instead of pushing Aaron, or if Aaron could have delayed them a few more days, then none of that would have needed to have happened. Okay, verses 29 through 32, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. So verse 29, Moses comes down, and he's not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. The last time he came down the mountain, it was a radiance of a different sort, a fire and an anger about the sin of the Israelites during the golden calf incident. As Cass puts it, the face is the face of Moses, but the light it radiates comes from the Lord, a sign not only of his elevated authority with the people, but also of the renewal of God's solicitude and care for them. Most wonderfully, humble Moses, despite his elevation, is completely unaware of his new godlike radiance. The fact that he's not aware is so interesting. You know, again, when he comes down the mountain, he was not aware of what was happening below or the criticism that he was fielding in his absence. And now he's not aware of God's glory through him at this point. He's so focused on God that those sort of things just don't matter. I think for us, there's great application here to just doing our thing. We're going to be walking with God and we're not particularly aware. We have to be somewhat aware, but we're not particularly aware of what people are thinking and doing and saying about us. We're just doing our thing. We're communing with God. We're walking in this world. We're living a life worthy of the calling we have received. This also results, as we see with Moses, in humility. So this comfort with who we are in Christ, what he's given us to do, that we're on mission, we have vision that's in line with what God wants from us, his kingdom, and all those sorts of things, all of those are very helpful in us reflecting the glory of God but us not really paying all that much attention to it. It's an external reflection of an internal reality, and people are able to see this difference in us when we have it going. It's not exactly a goal, but it's a byproduct. And maybe there's some natural manifestations of this. Maybe there's some kind of biology involved here where we just naturally uh, exude some sort of presence when we are in this state of joy and contentment, humility, etc., In any case, it is what it is. People can see it. Reminds me of Acts 7 with Stephen, right? And the glowing of his face when he's in a similar state. In particular, he's radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. He had asked to see God's glory, and now he reflects it. Now, we have the Spirit of God in us, so do we glow? There's God's provision here, but there's also his participation in it. And so Moses grows and glows in his relationship with God, and in his ability to exhibit that to other people. And hopefully that's the same with us as well, through prayer, Bible study, experiencing God, so to speak. People can see it in our face. They can see it in our life. We can be a light to the world. Now, the word for radiant in the Hebrew is related to the word for horn, and it's mistranslated in the Latin Vulgate. And that resulted in European medieval art, including Michelangelo's famous statue, often showing horns sprouting from his head. But that's not the correct translation. Here it says the skin of his face, not the top of his head. Ironically, in the context of chapters 32 through 34, horn is an unfortunate mistake in light of the the bull golden calf uh, mistake that they've made a few chapters earlier. 
So instead, the best way to think about this are horns, or we would say rays or beams of light. That's what's happening here. Now, practically, why did God give him a radiance, right? It could have been nothing at all. It could have been merely an internal reality rather than an external ramification of it. There could have been other external manifestations of it, but that's not the way it goes. For one thing, it gave him greater respect from the people. Matthew Henry says he carried his credentials in his very countenance. Remember Exodus 32, this episode began with, what's become of Moses? And the bottom line answer here is, wow, that's become of Moses. Very impressive. As a short-run matter, it would help motivate them in building the tabernacle. And as a continuing long-run encouragement to the people, it would be that Moses had been an effective intercessor. But at this point, verse 30 says, all were afraid to come near him. This would be pretty freaky to see. Verse 31, Moses calls to them, Aaron and the leaders come, and he speaks to them. Verse 32, everybody comes near, and he gave them all the commands. G. Campbell Morgan says, from that experience, he returned not to be a dreamer, forever thinking and talking of a past rapture, but to be as never before the man of affairs, directing, controlling all his earthly life according to the standards received at the mountain. It would seem as though the only thing he forgot was himself. In that forgetfulness, however, he found himself, though all unconsciously. When he descended to men, he came not thin, emaciated, weak, but strong and glorious in beauty, for his face shone with a brilliant radiance. And remember, this is after that 40-day fast. I mean, this is just simply amazing in any light, no pun intended, but especially after that fast. But he doesn't seek after that. He takes the experience of worship and relationship with God and turns it to practical matters immediately. And so for some of us, we want that next experience, but that's not the model that's given for us here. The experience is not for its own sake. It's not an end. It's a means to the end of loving God and serving others more effectively. And now let's read verses 33 through 35 of chapter 34. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face, but whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So afterward, he puts a veil on his face. Apparently, this lasts until the tabernacle is constructed. Verse 34, he entered the Lord's presence, which foreshadows the high priest in the temple and the tabernacle. It's interesting that he removes the veil. It tells us that no veil is necessary in God's presence and no veil is possible with God. It symbolizes how we must appear unveiled before God. Nothing hidden, no hypocrisy, no masks no show. Matthew Henry says, it is folly for us to think of concealing or disguising anything with God. Now, why the veil with the people? It would avoid distraction or becoming an object of worship. That's a continuing temptation. I'll revisit that again as we wrap up. We've seen it with Pharaoh and Moses. Moses is the mediator for God, but it's easy to confuse Moses and God. And if Moses has this glow on his face, it would become easier for them to worship him uh, and put him at a level he doesn't deserve. Paul makes a lot of this story in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. I want to introduce this here and then talk about it at length in the next segment. But for example, 2 Corinthians 3.13, we are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. 
Paul introduces that section in verses 7 and 8. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And then as Paul wraps up that section, verses 17 and 18, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, whereas Moses' glory was fading under the Spirit and the New Covenant, ours is increasing. That reflection of Jesus is increasing in us through the ministry of the Spirit. So, Paul plays with this passage in Exodus to great effect in 2 Corinthians 3. Last comment here is from Motyer, who says, The narrative begins with doubt being cast on Moses by the impatient people, back in chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, and it ends with the same people standing in awe of Moses as the man bearing the marks of divine validation, here in chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. Motyer goes on to draw applications to leaders for avoiding impatience and allowing God to defend us. God defends Moses. God is going to take care of business in his timing. Now, there is a place to defend yourself. We see this in the ministry of Paul. But too often we defend ourselves too quickly. We don't leave it to a God who wants to take care of his leaders. And that's what we see here. God's taking care of Moses despite the uh, temptations and the problems of the people. All right, let's take our first break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. Wrapping up Exodus today, and in the first segment, I took care of the rest of chapter 34 of Exodus. And in that discussion, I briefly talked about 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul uses that passage to great effect. And I'm going to come back to that and read much more of that passage connected to the Old Covenant, New Covenant discussion in the Old Testament, and then the discussion of the tabernacle and these sorts of things in the book of Hebrews. So let's start in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. I'm going to read a long passage here. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So in a nutshell, the new covenant and the Spirit far more glorious than what Moses is inaugurating in Exodus with the old covenant. Verse 9, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Again, the Old Covenant has glory as God is bringing it in through Moses here in Exodus, but how much greater is the ministry of Jesus and the Spirit? Verse 12 in 2 Corinthians 3, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. So now Paul is using the veil that Moses is wearing to draw a comparison to those who are veiled, even with the revelation that has come through Christ. 
Verse 15, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. 17 and 18 are just tremendous verses, but now we know the context for them, and it's exactly out of this passage in Exodus 34. We have unveiled faces, we contemplate the Lord's glory, and we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 4, he continues to make references. Chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Chapter 4, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Just as Moses was displaying the light of God, so too believers have the same ability. 2 Corinthians 5.1, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And here we have the references to tabernacle, tent, Eden, heaven, Christ, the Spirit, etc. that we talked about a few weeks ago. The references here in 2 Corinthians 5 to tent, building, eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And then the big punchline of the passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So a lot of great things in that passage, verse 21, the classic verse on salvation by justification, faith, grace, and the like. Verse 17, the new creation has come. That's all through Christ. And then this ministry of reconciliation in verse 18, the message of reconciliation, verse 19, and the metaphor of us being Christ ambassadors. We're not citizens of this world, we're citizens of heaven, and we're ambassadors who reflect the glory of God by representing him on earth as the Spirit glows through us. We talked about growing and glowing in the last segment, and that's what we do through Christ, through the Spirit. So there's this message of reconciliation. There's a ministry of reconciliation. A couple more verses in 2 Corinthians 4 that are interesting here. Verse 1, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. And then back to chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, as this section opens, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. And so even before Paul continues to, to develop his case, he's making the point that the greatness of the old covenant, it's still that the letter kills, but the Spirit, the new covenant, what Christ ushers in 
through the new covenant in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit gives life. Our competence comes from God through the Spirit. And then remember also verse 3, the reference to tablets of stone, tablets of human hearts. Well, that points backward to two key prophetic passages that every believer should know. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. So when you hear Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 talking about stone and hearts, he's clearly uh, having Ezekiel 36 in mind. Very similar passage, actually, earlier in Ezekiel, also good to know, chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. The other key passage here is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was husband to them, declares the Lord. So the reference here to the new covenant and the old covenant. Verse 33, again, the new covenant God says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So again, pointing forward to the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the Spirit under the new covenant. Of course, Paul is very good on this in Romans as well, but the punchline of the Old Covenant is that it teaches. Galatians is another great book for this, right? It can only instruct. It can show us what sin is. It can hold us accountable, holding a mirror to us, but it does not particularly empower us to accomplish that. It falls to the Spirit. An analogy I love to use here is talking about, you know, take your favorite great tennis player and imagine that they're as good of a teacher as they are a tennis player. And say that you got 20 lessons from that tennis player and then you would go out and try to compete. Well, you you still wouldn't do very well. I mean, the 20 lessons, even from the best teacher in the world, would still not help you. It would tell you where you fall short. It would be an improvement, but ultimately it's not going to help you be a really effective tennis player. But what if the tennis player could play from within you then you got a fighting chance, right? And that's what the Spirit of God does for us, living within us, indwelling, empowering, informing. Now we stand a fighting chance to be effective, to rise to the standards that God has set for us. As we saw at the tabernacle, God doesn't change his standards. When they fail, he just announces the standards again. So the standards are unchanged, but the empowerment through the Spirit is what makes the difference. The writer of Hebrews picks up the same themes. Let's read Hebrews 8, 3 through 7. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer, speaking of Christ. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. 
Verse 7, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. The writer then quotes the very passage we were just talking about in Jeremiah 31 before concluding at the end of chapter 8. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now, obsolete doesn't mean garbage. Obsolete doesn't mean bad. Obsolete means replaced by something that is better. And the new covenant is far superior to the old covenant. Hebrews 9 is also great reading this week as we're wrapping up Exodus, talking about the earthly tabernacle, talking about the blood of Christ, the perfect high priest offering the perfect sacrifice. And then the punchline of that entire section is chapter 10 of Hebrews 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest, Over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. With Exodus, we've been reading the Old Testament roots of the great new covenant and the ministry of Jesus and the Spirit. So we have one last passage in Exodus, chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. I want to set it up with verses 1, 2, and 33. Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. And then verse 33, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. That's the context for the final passage in Exodus, which is verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel during all their travels. So the conclusion is fittingly the glory of the Lord. Verse 34, the cloud cover. Verse 34 continues with the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 35, Moses could not enter. And that's in contrast to his ability to enter back in chapter 33, verses 18 through 23, the tent that he had set up outside the camp. Was he surprised? Maybe. But God allows approach only on his own terms. Verses 36 through 38 is the presence of God as a travel guide as they head through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. If it lifts, then they follow. If it's down, then they stay. Verse 38, it's a cloud by day. It's fire by night. And then the phrase house of Israel is very useful. It's a nation viewed as a household or family. Remember that Genesis is about the household piece of this story And Exodus is largely about the national piece of it. And we have this closing phrase that combines both of them. A few other things to say as we wrap up here. God is not simply accessible, and he's not accessible merely to Moses anymore. They're about to leave Mount Sinai, but they do have a portable Sinai in miniature. That's Cass's phrase. Cass also says the God of mercy, grace, and compassion has taken them back in full. They're not on probation anymore, as it seemed like they might be after the golden calf incident. Cass says further, the people learn through the worst sort of disobedience that the Lord is not only powerful and just, but also merciful and full of compassion. 
One more observation from Cass. God moves not in circles, but toward a goal. The people who follow him are invited to do likewise. They are blessed to be able to follow the path he leads them on. All right, let's take our second break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcast previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Questions and comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're wrapping up our study of Exodus today. In the first two segments, we covered the remaining text, a chunk out of chapter 34 and the very last five verses of the book itself. Last segment, I got into some concluding remarks, and that's where we will continue for this last segment. I want to start here with a quick review of the chapters and what was covered in them with a few of the key observations and how it connects to previous episodes of what we've done. If you put some time into it, Exodus is actually structured in a way that's pretty easy to remember. Chapters 1 through 4 is an introduction. Chapters 5 through 12 are the plagues. Chapter 13 through 18 is the Exodus and the pre-Sinai wilderness. 19 through 24 is Sinai and the law. And then 25 through 40 is the tabernacle with the golden calf incident tucked in the middle, chapters 32 through 34. So there's really five or six sections to keep track of, and the numbers aren't too bad if you're into that sort of thing. Now in Exodus 1, in that introduction, the Pharaoh forgets Joseph. He has the Israelites building store cities. He perceives the people as a threat because of their population, and he's foiled by two midwives. We covered this in episode 65. By the way, there's 28 episodes total on Exodus. Chapter 2 begins with the birth and deliverance of Moses. Again, he's foiled by three more women, Miriam, Moses' mom, and Pharaoh's daughter, most ironic of all. The second half of chapter 2 is when Moses flees to the wilderness at the age of 40. And the key to that story is that he pursues justice three times, but the first two times don't go very well. He ends up murdering an Egyptian. The second time, he is uh, messed with by a presumptive Israelite. And then finally, the third time, he helps the women out when he gets to Midian, and he's finally successful in dealing out justice. We see this from the very beginning of Moses' life, his passion for the underdog, his passion for justice. After another 40 years, Exodus 3 and 4 details the burning bush. God commissions Moses. Moses makes five excuses. We covered that in episodes 67 and 68. Moses finally assents to go. And then you have Exodus 5 through 12, the plagues. So there it's a contest between God and Moses against Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. And of course, we know who wins that. The hardened heart of Pharaoh is very interesting that he hardens his own heart and then God hardens it. The best story we told back then, I think, is that God hardens his heart so Pharaoh can choose what he really, really wants to do, which is to stick it to the Israelites. This is also the introduction to the verb know, that God wants to be known through these plagues. It culminates in Passover, including instructions to celebrate it before it actually happens. We covered all this in episodes 69 through 72. Exodus 12 through 18 is the Exodus and the pre-Sinai wilderness times. You've got the Red Sea deliverance. You've got three episodes where they're looking for water, the bitter water at Merah, the oasis at Elam, and then he has to strike the rock. The striking of the rock is like the cross and the crucifixion. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 10. 
Ian Thomas talks about the bitter water at Merah, which is cured, by the way, if you remember, by throwing a piece of wood in it. And that, again, can be compared to the cross and the crucifixion, that the wood is thrown in the water and it makes the water sweet. You also have the manna and quail, and then the battle against Amalek. And finally, the advice on governance from Jethro. That's in episodes 73 through 76. Exodus 19, they arrive at Sinai, and then we have an introduction to the Ten Commandments. I spent two weeks on that, episode 77 and 78. First half of chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments, paralleled in Deuteronomy 5, by the way. We spent five weeks on that, episode 79 through 83. Then there's the Book of the Covenant, which runs from the second half of 20 through 24, and the covenant is ratified. We spent two weeks on that, episodes 84 and 85. And then finally, we get to the tabernacle, the instructions in chapters 25 through 31, and then the obedience in chapters 35 and 40. We spent three weeks in the tabernacle, episodes 86 through 88. It's sandwiched in between those, Exodus 32 through 34, the golden calf incident, and the recovery afterward, including the people's greater degree of freedom with Moses gone, and then the most important revelations about God on justice and mercy and grace, as well as Moses' continuing and growing greatness along the lines of Abraham as he argues with God as Abraham did in Genesis 18. We covered that in episodes 89 through 91. And finally, a series of concluding remarks. The first thing is to go back to the the division of Exodus. It has three parts, the amazing deliverance from bondage and the foundation of the nation, the covenantal comprehensive law. And I put that in quotes because a lot of it is not legal sorts of law that we would usually talk about. But Israel's not just any old nation either. So it's a combination of laws we would think of it and a range of other things that would go beyond normal law. And of course, governance is a part of this as well. Governance by judges, elders, and by God. And the third part is the tabernacle and worship. And Leon Cass and his great commentary on Exodus is focused on that throughout his book, that it's about the foundation of a nation and all three of those parts. The nation has to have a beginning, has to have stories that are rooted in history. It has to have a competent law and governance, and it has to be focused on something transcendent. For Israel, it's tabernacle and worship. Cass calls this the three-pillared structure of Israel's founding, and he asks, can a people endure and flourish if it lacks a shared national story, accepted laws and morals, and an aspiration to something higher than its own comfort and safety? Can a devotion to technological progress, economic prosperity, and private pursuits of happiness sustain us when our story is contested, our morals weakened, and our national dedication abandoned? I doubt it. Living increasingly between technocracy and hedonism, defined not by our duties or callings, but by our devices and whims, we are feasted in body, but famished in soul, and our national fabric is unraveling. Cass continues, certain particularities of Israel's founding experience seem to me universally relevant for national character. People who have suffered estrangement and deprivation are more likely to feel sympathy for strangers and compassion for the needy than are those who have known only prosperity. People who have experienced tyranny are more likely to treasure freedom, especially if they have struggled to attain it, than are those who have never known anything else. People nourished collectively in the wilderness are more likely to be grateful for the blessings of existence than are those who regard human life as a zero-sum game and grasp all they can for themselves. As I'm reading this, I hope you can catch the applications not just to Israel, but to our own day and really any day. 
The second thing to talk about is that after Moses' birth, deliverance, and redemption, Israel was effectively and amazingly led by this charismatic leader and as a mediator for God. And by the end, we can even imagine him being replaced by the law, the tabernacle, and the broad leadership of elders and priests. It's going to be bumpy, but perhaps something effective can take place here. Still, there are problems to anticipate going forward as we close out Exodus. Cass observes that the risk of mistaking Moses for a god inherent in the original charismatic leadership no longer exists, but an institutional priesthood carries risks of its own. Being hereditary does not require virtue, as we see later. The trappings of priestly office invite self-importance and jealousy. Rituals can become lifeless and dull. Devotion to the minutiae of sacrifices can swamp concerns for righteousness and humanity, a big problem throughout the Old Testament. Later history will show that all this is hardly sufficient to ensure the people's fulfillment of their covenantal mission. Third, consider the transformation of the people throughout Exodus. They move from enslaved and forced to build store cities for Pharaoh to store grain to freedom, but submitted that freedom to a good and great God, building a tabernacle so he would dwell among them. Cass notes that by the end of the book, the Israelites appear to have merely exchanged one form of service, and it's the same Hebrew word, actually, for another. In neither case are they free. They still owe obedience and submission to an external and superior authority, and there are serious penalties for failing to comply. But there the similarities end. The way of Pharaoh and the way of the Lord differ massively in the form, purpose, and content of their respective laws and rule. And there are key distinctions here, and theological principles follow. Pharaoh is imposed by edict. The Lord's is accepted by the people. Pharaoh's rule is applied selectively. God's rule is applied universally. Pharaoh's law is for his own interest. God's rule is for their own interest and God's. And finally, Pharaoh's rule ignores rather than embraces and deals with enslaving internal passions. What does Pharaoh care about that? What can he do to change it? Well, God can. Cass observes here, God's law counters the enslaving passions of fear and despair, greed and lust, pride and envy. It inculcates virtuous habits of courage, moderation, self-command, empathy, and righteousness. And it invites all members of the community to seek and imitate the divine. The tabernacle, rather than pyramids and store cities, feeds human longings to be in touch with the divine. Taken as a whole, God's covenant directs human beings to fulfill the promise implied in being the earth's only creature made in the image of God. And finally, let's go back to the key verb and God's top goal in the book of Exodus, which is that he would be known by Egypt, Israel, Moses, Pharaoh, and so on. If we look at what that looks like before Sinai, it's the deliverance, it's the baptism in the Red Sea, it's the basic provision of food and water and protection for what's supposed to be a short time in the wilderness. At Sinai, they receive direction with respect to the law and worship, and they have that in hand going forward. Now, what are they not supposed to be? Well, they're not supposed to pursue the technical, sophisticated prowess of Egypt or the terrible base passions of the people they'll encounter in Canaan. They're supposed to pursue righteousness, justice, and holiness rather than exploit people or pursue carnal selfishness. They're to love God and honor Moses rather than to worship Pharaoh, Moses, or pagan gods. They're to revere nature in line with the creation mandate in Genesis 1, but they're not to worship it either directly or through pagan stand-in gods. 
And with respect to worship, it's not anything goes. Remember chapter 24, the uninstructed and eh, worship of Moses and the elders in chapter 24. You have the tabernacle versus the golden calf incident. All of this is for God to be pursued and worshiped and in relationship with him as he actually is, rather than as they imagine him or want him to be. Again, this is the importance of good theology. Our ideas about God are a given. Are they any good or not? That's the question. And for Israel, they've got to get much better ideas of God in hand. They're slaves and they're children. And so it's like trying to train a beaten dog or explaining God to a bunch of eight-year-olds. It's going to take some time and there's going to be some baggage. Let me close with what Cass says about this. Indispensable to this story is the self-revelation of Yahweh, Israel's mysterious God, who makes clear at the outset his desire to be known by human beings. In the book of Exodus, we discover that he is compassionate, loyal, awe-inspiring, powerful, righteous, solicitous, philanthropic, merciful, and present. He is moved by pity for his suffering people and recalls his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He answers Moses' request for his name with an enigma to be clarified by watching what he says and does. He is stronger than nature gods or human magicians. He is true to his word and executes judgment on evil doers. In the wilderness, he sustains his people with water and manna. His world is hospitable to human need. Unlike indifferent natural powers, he enters into a covenant with human beings that ultimately aims to make them holy as he is holy. Unlike the edicts of despotic human rulers, his law applies equally to all and is intended for everyone's benefit. Israel may be the Lord's firstborn, but he cares also for the stranger as well as the widow, the orphan, and the poor, and through the example of his law for all humanity. Most impressively, he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, full of loving kindness, and willing to forgive in the presence of repentance. Against the tragic view, his world encourages high striving despite the recurring likelihood of failure. He speaks with Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend, and although he grants Moses only partial knowledge of him, he seeks to be known throughout the world and begins an intimate relationship with his people, all of them, through the tabernacle. Though Yahweh is still mysterious, the Israelites and the reader know him much better at the end of Exodus than they did at the beginning. Lord, we thank you so much for the knowledge that comes through the book of Exodus about your character, about your working with history, people, uh, even when we're knuckleheads. Lord, we thank you for your work with Moses, with the people, your power, your might, your mercy, your compassion. All of this is displayed in Exodus. I pray that we would be changed by what we've learned here, that we would love you and serve others more effectively in the days to come because you're a good and great God. And we lift this up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Previous episodes are available by podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Free to interact with me on Facebook. And we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're wrapping up Exodus today. In the first two segments, we wrapped up the text itself picking up some excerpts in chapter 34 to wrap up the golden calf incident and chapter 40 to finish the entire book. I also spent in the last segment a long time talking about 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 and the middle of Hebrews, both of which have great connections to the passages we had talked about here at the end of Exodus. In these last two segments, I want to make a number of remarks by way of review, summary, and conclusion. So first, to provide an overview of the book of Exodus, it revisits and extends the Abrahamic covenant. It establishes a nation with a constitution and a transcendent purpose, right? Both the law, governance, community, and the tabernacle with worship, sacrifice, priests, and the like. 
And as with the Christian life, it spans from slavery to deliverance to glory. You can divide the book into two halves, the pre-Sinai part, chapters 1 through 18, and the section at Sinai, chapters 19 through 40. You can also divide it roughly into thirds, deliverance from bondage, the new nation with its governance and law, and the tabernacle and its worship. All three parts of those are essential. As I was looking to think of Exodus in terms of topics, I came up with seven prominent topics to talk about. The first is the overall goal throughout Exodus for God that all may know him. The verb know is crucial in the first part of the book as a verb, and then it's illustrated in the rest of the book as God is showing himself to Israel, most notably there at the end of the golden calf incident, not just wrath and judgment, but ultimately mercy, compassion, and and grace that trumps. He's not just the God who delivers in power, he's the God who cares about right conduct, and he's the God of compassion, mercy, and grace for those who repent, confess, follow, and seek to obey. Second, there's the topic of deliverance. So from bondage via the plagues, through Passover, and through the Red Sea, obvious applications here to becoming a Christian. The Life Application Bible says Exodus begins in gloom and ends in glory. This parallels our progress through the Christian life. We begin as slaves to sin, are redeemed by God, and end our pilgrimage living with God forever. Third, there's an obvious and famous emphasis on law, most notably the Ten Commandments, and there are tons of lessons there. We spent five weeks on the Ten Commandments. And the Book of the Covenants has a lot of good stuff that often gets overlooked. So the details of the law, the purpose of the law, all of that is a key theme in Exodus. Fourth is governance. So church and political governance, what's the governance of the community, the people of God going to look like? Most prominent here is Jethro's advice with respect to judges. But there's a lot here as Moses hands off power to his brother Aaron, to his lieutenant Joshua, a set of elders, priests, and Levites, and a bunch of other people. So governance is obviously a key theme here as well. Fifth is a tabernacle, so the details and parallels of its construction, the priest consecration, the symbolism of the sacrifices for New Testament believers. So for them and for us, there's so much in the tabernacle to be seen. Sixth is the idea of God's provision and their and our increasing participation. Jonathan Sachs talks about this very early in his commentary. He says that there are a number of double narratives whose significance becomes clear when we put them together. There are two battles, the Red Sea and the Amalekites. There are two sets of stone tablets. There are two times that God is revealed in a cloud of glory, chapter 24 at Mount Sinai, at the end of Exodus, chapter 40 at the tabernacle. The Sinai covenant was declared twice, once by God, chapter 20, once by Moses in chapter 24, and there are two accounts of the construction of the tabernacle before and after the golden calf. Sachs observes that they share a common feature. In each case, the first is the work of God alone, while the second involves a human contribution. Sachs concludes, so Exodus tells a double story. Yes, God delivered the people by a series of miracles, yet if those miracles were to have a lasting effect on the people, they had to make their own contribution to the process of liberation. There is an eternal message here. A people can be granted freedom by an external cause, in this case, divine intervention, but a people sustain freedom by their own efforts. It is not only what God does for us, but also what we do for God that changes us. 
And so this is a recurring theme in the Christian life. We're saved by grace, not by works, but we're saved to do good works. We're saved to be disciples. The ministry model of Jesus is prominently about discipleship. He worked with the crowds, he worked with individuals, but he poured his life into the twelve. Passages like Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, the purpose of church leaders is to train and equip believers to be a holy priesthood, a kingdom of priests, the language that's used here in Exodus 19, but it requires us to put in some work, to participate in spiritual disciplines, to learn the word of God, to walk with God, to live a life worthy of the calling we've received, on and on. It's God's provision and our participation. Leon Cass extends the same theme. He talks about the growth of the people as agents from passive slaves and the gracious delivering work of God with some help from Moses and Aaron. They marked their doors with Passover blood and entered into the Red Sea. That's a little bit of participation. They fought the Amalekites with human leadership and divine intervention. That's more. And then what do we finish with? The tabernacle is a major building project in obedience to divine commands. And the seventh and final theme I want to talk about is the Sabbath, the crucial role of the Sabbath in the book of Exodus. And you can see why it's crucial, because it's motivated by deliverance and by creation. But especially for the people of Israel coming out of slavery, there was no weekend. There was no Sabbath. And so this is a radical departure from life as they would have known it and the habits that they had grown up with and lived by for so many years, right? So this is a radically different approach to life that God continues to insist upon. Yes, it's part of the commandments, but it keeps getting mentioned way beyond that. Of greatest note, it's mentioned in the seventh and final ascent of Mount Sinai by Moses in chapter 31. And then it's the first thing that's mentioned before they begin to build the tabernacle, before you begin the work that I've set apart for you to make a sacred space for me, you must observe sacred time. And that's the Sabbath. Again, Jonathan Sachs is very helpful here. He describes this as the key to Exodus politics instead of utopia now. And he writes, this is the significance of Shabbat, or Sabbath, whose presence looms large in the book. It was the first commandment the Israelites received in the wilderness. It holds a pivotal place in the Ten Commandments. It is repeated immediately before and after the episode of the Golden Calf. It is central to the politics of freedom. On the Sabbath, we rehearse utopia, or what Judaism came later to call the Messianic Age. One day in seven, all hierarchies of power are suspended. So Exodus ends as Genesis began with the holy day on which God and his image, humankind, find rest. Likewise, there are seven prominent characters or sets of characters in developing these themes within Exodus. The first is, of course, Moses. We can start by dividing his life into three series of 40 years, from training and disobedience in the first 40 to exile in the next 40 to being called by grace and election to this ministry that God has given him, his initial feelings of inadequacy, God's resources, and eventual obedience, which will become a 40-year ministry to bring them out of Egypt, and unfortunately, all that time in the wilderness, but that's the subject of a different book. With Moses, we also see the development of his character, given his growing passion for the knowledge of God and God-given life experiences. We see Moses grow throughout this book in ways that are amazing and noteworthy. And, of course, his dealing with obstinate people interceding on their behalf. God gives them an opportunity to start over, but he refuses that and instead intercedes on their behalf. Just simply 
amazing. Second is the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, and most noteworthy about him is the hardened or hardening heart. Uh, The first five times it's mentioned, he hardens his own heart. After that, God hardens it as well. We talked about that at great length in earlier episodes, but Pharaoh obviously plays a key part in this. You also have Moses' supporting cast. Moses is the star, but there are key supporting roles of others, especially women and Moses' family. Now, Aaron's not all that impressive, but he obviously plays a key role. But you have the two midwives, two moms, Miriam and Zipporah, with her circumcision of their child in chapter 4. The fourth character underline is Jethro. Of course, he's Zipporah's father. He is the pre-Exodus 3 mentor and friend of Moses. We don't know exactly how that goes. It's not given to us in Scripture, but they're obviously close, and presumably Jethro had a tremendous influence on Moses as himself, a great man and a man of God. Exodus 18 is probably the highlight of here where he provides counsel and provides revelation about God in contrast to his role as the, quote, priest of Midian. And so there's some very interesting stuff in Exodus 18, but Jethro is a big player in the book of Exodus. Fifth, we have the increasing role of delegation to other people. So there's Aaron early, and then finally as the high priest to be. You have the priests and Levites, you have the elders and judges, you have her, and increasingly Joshua, starting with the battle with the Amalekites in Exodus 17. But delegation is a big theme which involves other people. Six, you've got the people of Israel, obviously playing a key role. They're grumbling despite deliverance and ample provision. Their complete lack of understanding of sin nature, Exodus 19 and 24 is amazing, when they agree to do everything under the covenant without even hearing it, almost as a reflex, yes, we'll do it, yes, sir, yes, sir, and they just don't get it. Then you have their amazing disobedience in Exodus 32 with a fuller, more knowledgeable embrace of God and the law after the golden calf incident. And finally, some good news, we saw their tremendous generosity and obedience in constructing the tabernacle. And then finally, the ultimate star of the show is God and his character. He is sovereign over nations and nature. We see his gracious deliverance and provision. We see his patience in dealing with Moses, the Egyptians, and the people. Second Peter 3 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And we see that throughout the plagues. And then once they're into the wilderness, the same character of God is exhibited in his patience. His intimate relationship with Moses is amazing, his passionate desire for detailed obedience. And then finally, the tension between his justice and his mercy. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 is the culmination of this tension and this outworking. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And we spent a great deal of time talking about how that evolved, how the golden calf incident allowed God to reveal this tension in his character. He wants holiness, but he has to forgive or there's no relationship. He has to have standards or it's anything goes. Uh, There's grace, but then there's cheap grace. And so we talked about this at great length. And so we learned so much more about the character of God, particularly after 
the golden calf incident, Moses's intercession, and God's response. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show.